great. <clears throat> Do you ever have that experience whenever you, um, you're just about to leave to go somewhere? and you're leaving people behind with a job to do. Maybe um, you're leaving your children for a day out. Maybe you're leaving um, your husband or your wife uh, to go and spend the day, and they have a list of things that they have to do. And so as you're going out the door, you're saying, and don't forget this, and uh, make sure you pay the bill, and, uh, and uh, make sure you phone your mother, and uh, don't forget to do this, and then you leave, and the door closes, and then you come back, you open the door and say, and another thing, please don't forget this, though, whatever. Have you ever experienced that? Some people are the experiencers, and some people are the experiencees, I can tell from that. Before I go, this. That's the context of this, I am the vine. This is Jesus saying, before I go, listen up. If you know the, the, um, the location of this passage, John 15, it is just after Jesus has had the last supper with his disciples. He's washed their feet. He's demonstrated his love. He's predicted uh, his betrayal. He's predicted that Peter's going to let him down. He has... Uh, transformed the, the, the Passover meal into something incredibly profound, and they've now gone out into, into the night. Jesus knows his time is very limited, and he wants to get some things across to them. That's really important, the last thing. That's why this is called, this section is often called the farewell discourses. It's the Jesus' last words before he knows he's going to be taken by the authorities. So before I go, this. And this is one of the things that Jesus is outlining to them. They're to the disciples. It's the last kind of chronologically of the I am's, although it's not the last in the series. We've just mixed the order up a little bit. And Jesus is covering loads in these last couple of chapters before um, he is taken away. And the thing to notice about this passage is that it's bookended by Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. In John 14, he's talking about the promise of the counselor who's going to come and be with them once he's gone. And then he talks about the, this I am divine. And then at the end of that little section, he talks more about the Holy Spirit. So this is bookended by the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus' presence ongoingly with us. And in the very middle, he says, I am the vine. Now, this is, this is a loaded statement. Just like a lot of the I am statements that we've looked at, they're not just what they seem. They're not just Jesus picking an analogy out of the air and then saying, that's a bit like me. These are often loaded. And this phrase is loaded itself. When he says, I am the vine, notice he doesn't say, I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine. The picture of the vine is one that's, that's common in the Old Testament. It was commonly known as a symbol of the people of God, of Israel itself. And we have some passages um, in the Old Testament. If you, you can look them up if you want. Psalm 80, 8 to 16. Isaiah 5, 1 to 7 and 27 verse 2. Jeremiah 2 and chapter 12. Ezekiel chapter 15 and chapter 19. And all of these are in reference to the vine being the people of God. The thing is, in nearly all these mentions in the Old Testament of Israel being the vine, the people of God, it's where they are being fruitless. It's where they are not actually succeeding as the vine of God, as the, as the, as the people that God wants them to be. 
Jesus then answers, says to his disciples, those who are gathered around, he says, I am the true vine. I'm the real deal. I am the vine. Israel, God's people, were meant to be the, the, the carriers of God's blessing to the world, the people of grace that would meet out to all the other Gentile nations. But yet they had let down, they'd followed other gods, and Israel had been taken away into captivity, and they were, they were in trouble. They were, didn't know who they were. They were failing miserably. So Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the real Israel. I am the one that can do what Israel couldn't do. I am the one who can do what humanity cannot do. And what is that? It is to perfectly obey the word of God. I am the true vine. And the disciples will have heard that. They will have heard that Jesus is saying, I am this new beginning. I am this new family. This new people of God remain in me. So he says that, but then he goes on to say a little bit more about I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. Now, I love to think of myself as a gardener. It's a lie, but I do like to think of myself as a gardener. I especially like to think of it when I've got a garden voucher that some people have given me, and I happen to go to a local garden center, and I've got this lovely picture of you know, some kind of agrarian idyll where I go and pick up some uh, plants, some, some produce, and I go to home, and, and I plant it, and then I have the picture that in the future I will go out in the morning, and I will, I will pluck an apple from the tree. <laughs> I don't know why I skip, but um, I pick an apple from the tree... I'll, I'll gather my harvest of fresh fruit and, you know, I'll pick up some potatoes for later on. And, and, so, and I, I have this lovely picture in my head. The only thing is, in the middle of planting and harvesting is this thing called gardening. And I'm not so good at that. Okay? Now, this is not when Jesus says, my father is the gardener. He's not talking about a Monty Don kind of, you know, thing, not in a gardener's world. It's not talking about a keen amateur who's got a nice little plot of land. This is a professional vine dresser that we're talking about. A person whose sole aim is to see not just a little small hold of a garden, but an entire crop to be flourishing and fruitful. To know how to, how to bring the best out of the vine. That's what Jesus is talking about when he calls, my father is the gardener. I am the vine, my father is the gardener, the one who tends the vine. This is more than a hobby. This is a specific expert in knowing how to get the best out of a vine. And what does this passage say the gardener does? Well, the first thing a gardener does, it does an awful lot of cutting off and getting rid of rubbish. Now, this is a bit hard to hear at times, isn't it? Cutting off the branches that bear no fruit. We saw all of a sudden get paranoid going, is, is God going to cut me off? Am I going to be thrown into a fire? I've discovered that... Uh, that removing branches or removing dead wood on a tree is good for the entire tree. Sometimes we need to get rid of stuff that is drawing out resources that otherwise would create a really healthy, vibrant vine, plant, tree, whatever. It seems harsh, but actually it's for the benefit of the entire vine, the entire plant, that these dead woods are removed. And this would have been heard by the first people that Jesus said this about those who were not part of the real people of God. Those who were following the rules but hadn't got the right relationship with God. That they would be, end up separated from the true people of God. Another translation of this word that, that is for, for cutting off is actually a, a phrase which means lifting up. So we 
we have an imagination that this gardener, this vine tender, comes along and sees a, a branch that is not producing fruit. And instead of, first of all, cutting it off, he raises it up in order for it to get some light. He gives it a chance to revive, to restore, to heal. That is the picture of what God, the gardener, does for us. He doesn't just rat us off. He tries to get us to a point where we can be healed, restored, revived in order that we ultimately at some point produce good fruit. God is in the business of restoring and lifting up. But it's not just cutting off that the, that the gardener does. He also does pruning. Pruning, cleansing, purifying. It's all a similar word, all the same word. Those already producing fruit, there needs to be pruning. Now, I discovered this uh, a number of years ago, when I planted my first apple trees. Again, in my little idyll, I was going to have a full orchard, but I only planted two. Um, <laughs> so I planted this, and I asked my uh, gardening advisor, Kathy Longman, how do you do this? And she, I thought it was just dig a hole, stick it in, put the soil on, happy days, you'll have apples in a year. Oh, I was wrong. Because there's all these books about when to cut, what to cut, how deep to cut. When, you know, I was going, what is all this cutting to do about? That's about pruning and cleaning and tending. I didn't realize. I thought it was just, you know, like, you'll have apples. <laughs> but you've got to prune it. You've got to keep tending it. And God's the expert tender of the vine. He's the expert vine tender. He's the one who knows how much to cut, what to cut, and when to cut. And often the expert uh, pruner amongst you, who understand, often cuts much more and much deeper than we expect, than what we would think of as amateurs. And God is the expert gardener. And sometimes he has to cut and remove stuff from our lives that maybe is a little bit uncomfortable for us, a little bit more than what we would suggest we need, because he is the expert. And this is not punishment. This is not God chastising us for the sin in our lives. This is God removing the detritus that our sinful lives often um, collect as we go along. So in the same way as the, the vine tender comes along and sees a vine and sees some of the moss growing on it or some residual dead wood or some kind of bugs that are on there or some dirt, stuff that will prevent the vine from flourishing and producing fruit. The vine tender's job is to get rid of all that. To get rid of all that. We understand this in Scripture as God's discipline. And we don't like that word, do we? Because it sounds a bit painful. But this is God who's, and the, the, the Scripture says, God disciplines those whom he loves. Those who are already producing fruit, who seem to be doing well, he will prune. Why? To produce more fruit. Because we often have stuff, stuff that needs dealing with. No matter how long we've been Christians, we have stuff that needs dealing with, that needs shaking up, that needs challenging or changing, that needs cutting off or maybe even scraping away. And it's not necessarily an easy or comfortable experience. Maybe it's the old enjoyable habits that you hope someone won't preach about because you quite like them. Or maybe it's about those attitudes and behaviors that underpin what you do and how you see things that never challenge because you have them hidden behind the facade of goodness and holiness. Maybe it's those hidden sins that you know you commit. No one else knows you commit, but God knows. And he knows that these things are preventing you from growing and flourishing as part of the vine. C.S. Lewis, 
wrote uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm sure you know that. And one of the books was The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in this story, one of the children, a guy called Eustace, who's a bit of an obnoxious child, um, he goes off on this mission or this quest where, and he discovers a whole pile of, of enchanted gold. And because he kind of takes the, um, some of the treasure that he's not supposed to, he's transformed into a dragon. And ultimately, he's, he's saved from being a dragon, returns to a boy only by Aslan the lion scraping off the scales to return him to who he should be, who he really was. Sometimes God's pruning is painful, but it's never not necessary. There are sometimes things in our lives that will prevent us from flourishing as the people God wants us to be, and we need to trust the good gardener to prune us, even when it's more uncomfortable than we realize. God loves us exactly as we are. That's a great statement, isn't it? But you know I've said this many times. God loves us exactly as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. He loves us exactly as we are, sins and dis, you know, things that we do wrong, disappointments, all that. He loves us as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are because that wouldn't be loving either. And so he wants to prune us, to challenge us, to change us, to cut us back the stuff that is not helpful for us or for his kingdom. So what's the whole point of this? Why is the father, the gardener, so keen on cutting and pruning? What's the point of the vine in the first place? Well, it's one key word, and that word is fruitfulness. The word is fruitfulness. It's what God wants to see. It's your fruitfulness. It's what you are actually made for. It's whether, whether you're aware of it, whether you accept it or not, each one of you has been made to be fruitful in God's kingdom. You might think, no, it's for the special people, the ones who can stand at the front, the ones who seem to have it sorted. Incorrect. You are made to be fruitful. You're designed by God to be that way. And what Jesus has done through his cross and resurrection, what the Holy Spirit does continually in remaking us, reforming us to be more like Jesus, is all part of this fruitfulness. You are made to be fruitful. It's actually what the vine is for at the end of the day. A number of years ago, we were in France on holiday, and we're staying in this lovely little house, this little cottage, and it was a mile walk up this lovely lane to where we had to get our kind of daily baguettes and everything. It was, it was really idyllic. It was beautiful. And we had to walk um, in between these beautiful vineyards, and there were some of these vines that were green and leafy, brown and woody, and a little bit boring. And then we came to some areas that had totally fruited, and they were laden with huge bunches of juicy, ripe, beautiful pink and white and red grapes. And they were wondrous to behold, because that is what the vine is for. What you are for is fruitfulness. God wants you to be fruitful. Jesus is saying this to his disciples because his heart, remember, before I go, please be fruitful. That's what he wants us to be. You are designed to be fruitful. And this fruit that we produce will look like, smell like, taste like Jesus because our whole point is to become like him. So what is this fruit actually like? Well, first of all, there's the fruit that develops within us. 
And we've done this not that long ago. We looked at the fruit of the Spirit as we see it in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience. And we explored all of those in detail. Those are not, just to remind you, they're not just good character traits. They're not just how can I be a better person or how can I be more pleasant around people and be liked by by people more. It's not about that. This is about exhibiting the qualities and characters of Jesus. That's what fruitfulness is, first of all, in ourselves. That we are becoming an image of Jesus more and more. That is one of the aims of our fruitfulness. That's the first one. The second one is kingdom. We want to see God's kingdom come in the places where we live. We want God's kingship, God's rule to be the one that is ruling over our nation. Where the hungry are fed, the broken lives are healed and broken lives are transformed. Where culture is enhanced and not cheapened. Where justice and mercy become the predominant features of our society. Wouldn't that be a beautiful society to belong to more and more? And that is the God society that is bearing fruit. Think of the fruit that's being borne by some of the Christian agencies that are filling in the gaps that our government just can't do for lots of different reasons. We're not going to get political. We're talking about God's kingdom here. So God's people say, we can do this. And the fruit grows and grows. So we've got the self, the fruit that's growing within us, our likeness of Jesus, kingdom, God's values in our world. And yes, it absolutely is about people. It's about people coming to know Jesus. That's the fruit that Jesus wants us to have. People coming to know Jesus for themselves and helping them to grow in knowing him. We are meant to be bearing all these different types of fruit. All of us are meant to be bearing all these types of ourselves, our, our culture, our society, and bringing people to know Jesus. And here's the killer question for you. Are you fruitful? So look at that question. And honestly, before God, I ask him, are you fruitful? Are you producing the fruit that God wants to produce in you? Are you fruitful? Maybe your answers are, I don't know if I am. A bit, a bit of fruit. Maybe, maybe not, not sure. Or the usual one, ask someone else. (laughs) Are you producing fruit? Because look at the passage, because we're going to find out what is it about fruit? What is really key about this fruit? First of all, the fruit exists in the first place. We are meant to be producing fruit, okay? That's an accepted. Yes? Excellent. But when you go and you buy a bunch of grapes, or you go to a vineyard or something like that, and you're looking for a bunch of grapes, you don't see just one grape growing on a vine, do you? Sometimes don't even see one bunch because actually fruit needs to be measurable. This is what we're called to do. We're called to bear fruit. We're not just called to bear fruit. We're called to bear much fruit. And if you keep on reading, not just much fruit, but even more fruit. And not just that, any old fruit. We're called to bear lasting fruit. So the one grape hanging from the vine isn't good enough. God's fruit needs to be measurable, quantifiable, tangible, Obvious, noticeable. Fruit. No, not just fruit, but much fruit. That's what it says in the word. But not just much fruit, even more fruit. And this fruit is not just any old fruit. This is the fruit that will last. I'm not just talking about shelf life on Morrison's and Tesco. 
We're talking about fruit that will propagate. That's the whole point of fruit, isn't it? Not that it is, uh, you know, it's on your meal table. The whole point of fruit is to propagate the vine, growing more and more and more. Fruit, much fruit, even more fruit, lasting fruit. And these have got to be obvious, quantifiable, and tangible, not hidden, personal, pious, and private. It's meant to be obvious that God is at work in you. And the question that's incredibly important, we had this as we've looked at the Do You Know Him series last year, when we've interviewed people, when we were talking about baptisms, one of the questions that we ask is this one, what difference has knowing Jesus made in your life? If we had time, I'd get you to turn to each other and ask that question and wait for an answer. Because tomorrow morning, you could go into work, or you'd be in the playground, or wherever, your coffee shop, whatever situation, and someone might just say, so, what did you do at the weekend? And you must, might have the courage and say, I was at church. And they go, oh, you're a Christian. What difference does it make in your life? And if your answer hasn't got anything more than what you do and affect your calendar and your activities, you are not bearing fruit, you are bearing leaves. What difference has knowing Jesus made in your life? And can you answer that question? I'm challenging you as a... Trust me, when I've been reading this question, it's challenging me. I'm challenging you to think, what fruit have you got from being in a relationship with Jesus? And if you can't answer that question, we're going to need to listen to the rest of the sermon, all right? <laughs> what fruit is being produced? Any? Much? Even more? But do you actually want to be fruitful? Is it something you want to see? You want to see God's fruit in your life? And don't just say yes because that's the Christian thing to do. Because this affects your life. Do you want to produce fruit in keeping with what God wants? We're not necessarily comfortable with this concept of measuring fruitfulness. It's, it stinks a little bit of, of, of numbers and, and measuring faith. And we, we don't particularly like that. How many of us have been involved in any mission or event? And at the end of it, we've said, it's not about the numbers. Has anyone ever said that? It's not about the numbers. It really is about the numbers. Not just for ego's sake, that's park that, that's not so good, but it is about the numbers. It's because we want more fruit, not just satisfied with the one bunch that we produce, but more. I was at a, my first mission trip I ever went on was um, in a place called Lurgan in Northern Ireland. I was about 15 at the time. And it was a youth team, and it was made up of mainly people, young people from Northern Ireland. And there was a few people from around the world as well. We had a couple of, uh, three people from Germany. And there were two girls in this particular team from Germany called Gudrun and Alex. And uh, we went to Lurk, and we did all the kind of tent mission stuff that you do. You did all the dramas and the plays. You sang the songs. You did the prayers. You did the preaches. You did the street work and the witnessing. And it was great. And one night, we gathered back together, and we said, Hallelujah, two people have become Christians tonight. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's seriously needing this sermon. Okay. Two people became Christians. Thank you, even a clap, thank you. And we looked around, there was Alex and Gudrun, and they were heads down, and as if their world had ended. And we said, what's wrong? And they said, we want more. We, we, we want more than two. 
sweet, Lord, we want 10 tomorrow night. We were going, oh, easy up on that night. What are you on about? We want more. They were totally dissatisfied, not because they were on some kind of ego trip, but because they knew that if 10 people became Christians that next night, there were 10 people who had been rescued from the jaws of hell, 10 people who were in a relationship with Jesus with the potential of life transformation, 10 more people who had the opportunity to tell a story which might transform more people's lives. They were concerned about the numbers. They had what I term a holy dissatisfaction for more. A holy dissatisfaction for more. And sadly, I think we have a sad satisfaction for less. We're glad when something happens and we go, well, we've done that. We polish our halos. We need to develop a dissatisfaction. More, God. We want more. Not for our ego. God forbid. We want more. More people coming to know you, Jesus. More people experiencing more of you. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 2, it says, the Lord added to their number daily. By Acts chapter 12, the verb has changed. It's no longer addition. It says, the Lord multiplied. Jesus' times tables are a little bit rubbish. He goes 12, 72, 3,000, half the planet. That's Jesus' times tables. He starts with 12. And then there's 72. And then on the day of Pentecost, over 3,000 are added to their number. And then within 300 years, half the known world are followers of Jesus, this unknown prophet from a backwater in Judea. Jesus' maths. It's a bit more exciting than ours, isn't it? We know that from the parable of the sower. You'll have a harvest, 30, 60, 90, 100. When was the last time you had a 100% increase of people coming to know Jesus in your life? Has anyone, can anyone please put your hand up and say, I've seen a 100% flow of people who've come to know Jesus through me. Okay, 60%, 30%. That's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Because this is the harvest that Jesus is looking for. We want more of Jesus' fruit in our own lives. We want more of his power at work and around us. We want more people coming to know him and growing to know him more. More lives transformed, more healings, more lives restored. My question is, do you actually want this? Do you? Seriously, answer me. Do you? So what are we going to do about it? Well, stop trying to grow fruit. Seriously, where in this passage did Jesus say, go and grow fruit? Nowhere. What does Jesus tell us to do? He says this, abide, 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 abide. I just haven't got my needle stuck. Jesus says 12 times in the space of 17 verses the word meno or derivative of it, which means abide or remain or stay connected. In the first eight verses, eight times does he use the word remain. Do you think he's trying to get something across to us? Remain in me. There's a story about a pastor who was once um, preaching a sermon on John chapter 15 verse 12, about um, love one another as I have loved you. And he preached the sermon 
Lovely sermon. Everyone shook his hand, shook his hand as they went out. Wonderful. Following week, he gets up, he preaches exactly the same sermon. And people have a bit kind of hit and miss attendance. So no one really noticed for about three or four weeks when they went, okay, I'm having massive deja vus going on here. So eventually after like you know, six, seven, eight weeks where the sermon has been identical every single week, some brave deacon <laughs> goes up to the pastor and says, Pastor, I need to have a word with you. I don't know if, you know, you're just starting to forget things a little bit perhaps, but you know, um, it just so happens that you're, you've preached the same sermon for the past eight weeks. Could we have something else? And the pastor said this, I'm going to keep on preaching it until you start doing it. I'm going to keep preaching until you start doing it. Jesus said 12 times, abide, 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 abide. Remain in me, remain in me, remain in me, remain in me, remain in my love. What's he asking us to do? Remain. That is how it works. The only way to bear fruit, Jesus, is to stay, Jesus says, is stay connected with him, to remain, to abide. It says in verse 5, apart from me, you can do no thing. You may show growth, but no fruit. That's when you know that things are busy, but they're not actually producing fruit. He wants to produce fruit that will last, that will go on and on and propagate over generations. We have an investment initiative to go and invest in other people's generation in their walk with Jesus. Who are you mentoring? Who are you praying with? Who are you reading the Bible with? We have a responsibility for fruit that will go on and on and on. I have a lot of um, friends, whenever I was a teenager, we, big Christian subculture in Northern Ireland, and I know the loads of them who were on fire for Jesus are nowhere near the church now. I spoke to one just the other day. She said, what are you doing, Philip? Because that's my proper name. Um, so what are you doing? I said, I'm a minister of a church. She said, oh, I always thought you might do that. I sadly gave up on the faith through a number of different reasons in the university and stuff like that. And my heart sank. I'm sure you know people that have journeyed with you and are nowhere near where the Lord is now. What's the thing that can prevent that? Abiding, abiding, abiding. So remaining in Jesus, it's a pretty vague concept, isn't it? We can all say, yes, remain, abide. Yes, it's pretty vague, pretty esoteric, a bit out there. What actually does it look like? What does abiding, remaining mean? Well, Jesus actually says in verse 9, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will be remaining in my love. If you keep my commandments, in other words, obedience. He says, obey my commandments and remain in my love in the same way as I obey my Father and I remain in His love. The way that we remain, abide, is by following God's commandments. But these are not misery, servitude. He says it will give you joy. Why? Because it's about relationship. We obey because we want to stay connected to Jesus. It's all about relationship, having an ongoing, live, real, persevering joy and tear-filled intimacy with Jesus, the Savior, our Lord, and our friend. And this is seen in obedience to him. But obedience to what? His commands? What are his commands? Just to be nice? How do we know what Jesus wants? We know what Jesus wants because we spend time with him. Have you ever had that um, experience when, when it's sandwich time and you say, does anyone want a sandwich? And say, yeah, go, uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to Marks and Spencer's. And they say, uh, what would you like? And you go, ah, uh, choose something that I'd like. 
My wife of 20 years, I've known her for more than 20 years. She says that to me, I still panic, I'm going to get it wrong. How do we know what Jesus wants? Or did we once know what he wanted? Or do we make an estimated guess? The only way is to be in a constant relationship with him. How? First of all, through worship. Eugene Peterson said, Worship is when we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. It's about putting God at the heart of our lives, at the epicenter of our existence. That's what worship is about. Not just worship, but we're also talked about the word. Jesus talks about this in verse 3. He says, um, my words have made you clean. The word is another one for, it's the same word for clean, for purify, for pruning. My words have done that. My words have purified you. In verse 7, he says, my words remain in you. My friends, please read God's word. Too many Christians have stopped doing it or do it every other day or once a week or when they're in church. Read God's word. Abide in God's word, all of it, often, daily, learn it, memorize it, sing it, share it with others, chew on it, draw it, watch it, allow the words of Jesus, God's words to percolate through your eyes, through your mind, through your heart, into your very soul and being, so that it will refresh you, feed you, restore you, cleanse you, challenge you, and renew you. Please, that is how we know what God's will is. Let God's word live in you. And prayer, prayer is not just following a list of words. It's a dynamic, intimate relationship, spending time in God's presence, allowing his Holy Spirit to still you, guide you, and speak to you. It's interesting, I've been reading, doing the Bible in one year, which has been really good, especially the bloodthirsty bits in Kings. It's been awesome. Um, I realized after a few, a good number of weeks, I felt a bit dry, and I realized it was because I, I was reading, but I wasn't abiding. So the reading was important, but I needed to be spending time in prayer with God to readjust our lives to the rhythm of heaven, to have God remind us by his Holy Spirit of who we really are. That's the importance of prayer. And then it's also about being together. You don't have a grip growing on its own. We've established that. We grow together, bunches on bunches of vines. This growth is intimate, but it's never individualistic. And the heart of the command, love one another. You can't love one another if you're on your own. That's Jesus' command. This whole idea of abiding, this passage, I'm just going to wrap up with this story. This passage, um, it was a nice passage for me for a whole number of years until about two years ago when some of you know that I had a bit of a, I bottomed out. I, um, I kind of burnt out, I'd reached, I had some mental health uh, depression, and I just, I just bottomed out. Some of you were around, some of you were amazing and supportive. That sounds like some of you weren't, I don't mean that. <laughs> Although, to be honest, no. <laughs> and I genuinely thought that my ministry was over. Genuinely. And that crushed me an awful lot, but I couldn't see any way out. And I went, I had some medicine, I had some doctors helping me out, but the team dragged me kicking and screaming to a conference, and the guy who was speaking there, a guy called Carl Martin, he preached on this passage. And it was like blinding light saying, Phil, you need to abide, 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 abide. And so I committed, Lord, even though I don't feel like it, I will read your word. 
I will read it regularly. I will pour over it. I will pray like I've never prayed before. I had times when I hadn't, I, I, I experienced times with God I, would, I never thought I could have. And it wasn't pretty at times. It was really hard going. The morning of after the, uh, the launch night of Pentecost, uh, launch night of Do You Know Him a couple of years ago, I sat down and I wrote in my journal that about 18 months prior to that, there was no way I could have imagined what God would have done. God has done an amazing stuff over this past number of, of years, particularly the last 18 months. I'm not saying it's because of this, but I know that my ministry has never been more fruitful, never been more fruitful since I started abiding, abiding, abiding. And you know what? When I don't abide, I'm not that fruitful. So the question is this. Well, mate, oh, you're gorgeous. <laughs> Jesus said, I am the vine. He said, you are the branches. My friends, you and I are the branches. We are where the fruit grows. Do you want the fruit to grow? Not just any fruit, but much fruit. Not just much fruit, but even more fruit. Not just any old fruit, but fruit that will last. Do you want the holy dissatisfaction that we want more of what God is about? God grows the fruit in his time and his abundance. We don't grow the fruit. All we need to do is abide. And if we can take nothing else from this morning, just take that. Amen?